could have related the experience of fear in running through my house to get to a locked room so I could lock the door and he couldn't get in. All of that was done making six figures, having two master's degrees and traveling across the country to talk to really smart people in my job. People have this demographic of what they think an abused person looks like. I don't fit that. And I'm raising my hand here to say, there is not a demographic that is not impacted by domestic violence. In a corporate world, where all employees have great leaders with no egos that create fun cultures where people can do their best work. The employees and companies thrive while doing great things for the customers, themselves, and each other. Well, we know that rarely happens. I'm Jeff Palaccio. I have been a leader for over 40 years for every t-shirt size company from small 16 employees to extra large over 1 million. Please join me while I interview outstanding leaders that will share stories of great leadership and not so great. It will help you become a better leader while poking fun about all the crazy shit that happens in corporate America. Hi, I'm Joe Deshawn, and welcome to The Corporate Couch with Jeff Palaccio. Today, Jeff is interviewing Caroline Markle Hammond. Caroline is a three-time international best-selling author and one of the 20 most inspiring leaders of 2022, according to Women Leaders Magazine. Caroline has spent 30 years as a results-driven sales and training professional promoting billion-dollar brands for Fortune 500 companies. She is the CEO and founder of Safe and Harm's Way, a Kansas City-based nonprofit and an online secure resource for people navigating the sadness, worries, lies, screaming, fear, and pain of domestic violence. As a survivor of domestic violence, plus revival from a death experience, Caroline uses storytelling to evoke change. She has been featured on Oprah, Forbes, PBS, NPR, and Ms. Magazine, as well as national and regional television. You can find out more about Caroline at carolinemarklehammond.com. Now let's listen as Jeff talks to Caroline. I'm very excited about today's podcast. My guest today is Caroline Markle Hammond. What a fantastic career she's had. She co-founder and CEO of two organizations, award winner. Uh, she's appeared on Oprah, Forbes, PBS, NPR, Miss Magazine. She's a best-selling author, podcaster, and speaker. And uh, she's had some unbelievable experiences. So Caroline, welcome to the podcast today. Jeff, thank you for having me. I'm really excited and honored that you would include me in your list of people. Thank you. Oh, oh God. Very, yes. I'm, like I said, uh, I, we met on Randy Powell's Lessons in Leadership podcast, obviously virtually. Um, Randy has a podcast where he brings people from all over the world uh, to tell their story, usually published authors. And um, I grew up about an hour from uh, New York City uh, and attended uh, Manhattan College in the Bronx uh, for my college. And I thought I knew all the crazy shit that could happen to people. And when I heard Caroline's story, 
on Randy's podcast, I was just so taken aback. So we'll, we'll talk more about that. We're, uh, because uh, that obviously made uh, Caroline the person she is today. But maybe you can just give brief overviews of the two founda- uh, two organizations you've started and co-founded and lead as the CEO. Sure. Thank you for the opportunity. And thank you for that lovely introduction. I tell you what, that Randy Powell brings together some pretty phenomenal people. And one of those people that I'm fortunate to have in my life is you. You are an ultimate connector. You have put me in touch with so many people that have grown my brand, my business, and my connections. So I want to, I'd be remiss if I didn't start off with saying that about you, sir. So thank you. Thank you. I, so I do two things and they're interrelated, which are some days that it seems very overwhelming to do two things, but because of the crossover, it's, one leads into another. So the first thing I have is a for-purpose organization. I'm trying to get away from the word nonprofit. I don't, I think words have power and I really need to make that business profitable in order for me to do the services that I'm providing for people. That name, that organization is called Safe in Harm's Way. And safeinharmsway.org is an online community where we partner with people across the globe to help individuals who are navigating the sadness, worry, lies, fear, screaming, and pain of domestic violence. And then the other organization is called Epizon Strategy Solutions. And Epizon is the Greek word for survivor. We take all that individualized approach for the person experiencing domestic violence. And we turn that around, create content, create uh, social media, create year-long interactions with employees at large to small corporations. Because we know that domestic violence is a 3.6, according to the CDC, trillion dollar problem for employers in the United States. And we also know that 60% of the employees are showing up at work every day, hiding those bruises from home, whether those bruises are emotional, physical, psychological, or sexual. So we take all that individualized training that we do at Safe and Harm's Way, we bring it over to Epizon Strategy Solutions, and we help corporations keep their focus on profitability at the same time they are protecting their employees. Yeah, it's fantastic. And I, I think we should start with going right to you know, what led you to those organizations. So again, in hearing your story on Randy's podcast, I was just, uh, it it just moved me so much. Uh, So uh, I'd like to start with that and uh, just tell your story on how you basically got into the two areas and the companies you founded. Sure. And before I start, I, I like to say a couple things whenever I talk about my story. The first is, if anyone listening to this has experienced domestic violence or knows and loves somebody who has, and this conversation is maybe triggering for you, sets down into a bad pathway on a random day that you choose to stumble upon this and listen to Jeff's podcast, the number that you can call if you have any issues or concerns is 800-799-7233 or 800-799-SAFE. And that's staffed 24-7, 142 different languages that allows people to get the help and services they need immediately, especially when you have an event that's triggering you, like maybe this story might. I also like to say 
that this story and what I have survived through is filled with all the ugly tentacles of domestic violence, which includes financial, emotional, verbal, physical, and sexual abuse. So those are some trigger warnings for people. And I realized finally, this is the preface, that I'm going to be using the female pronouns because I'm a woman, I identify as female. So those pronouns are going to be she and her. I realize now and understand that men experience violence and people who are more gender fluid in how they identify also experience domestic violence. I want my message to be heard with the understanding that I, of course, know that, but also because it's my story, I use those female pronouns. Thanks for the opportunity to share it because I know when I do that other people feel less alone in the world. And that's the whole purpose of being able to do this. And what I do Jeff, is, as I tell the story, I'm going to pause and see if you have any questions throughout, because chances are, if you have questions at any certain parts, anybody listening might as well. So it will be seven years in 20, um, since this coming 2023. It will be seven years since I chose to escape from a man who claimed to love me just four weeks prior to our planned and paid for wedding. Now, until then, and this is very important. I would never have identified as being abused. Could have told you how sad I was. Could have told you that I feared when he would come home. Could have told you I worried a lot about whether or not he was lying to me. Had zero evidence of it, but just had this gut feeling. Could have told you how much pain it was to be thrown against a wall. Could have experienced or related the experience of fear in running through my house to get to a locked room so I could lock the door and he couldn't get in. I'd like to clarify, all of that was done making six figures, having two master's degrees and traveling across the country to talk to really smart people in my job. And I point that out because people have this demographic of what they think an abused person looks like. I don't fit that. And I'm raising my hand to here to say there is not a demographic that is not impacted by domestic violence. Right. Most it, people would not think of a, a, a highly paid, professional, very successful person being abused in any type of way, because in your outward appearance, um, it was obviously a portrayal of success and professionalism and, you know. Exactly. And that's part of the equation within domestic violence is that I, I've traveled the world. I have spoken to so many survivors to the person. They are fiercely intelligent, highly empathetic. They do not quit and they always win. When you put that kind of person within someone whose sole purpose is to issue harm, you don't quit. I always referred to him as just my toughest customer. And if I could only learn how to better communicate with him, tailor my message so that we could get back to what it felt like in those first six weeks of a relationship, no one stays when they start being abused. If it happened right away, they stay because over the course of time, people are dismantled from the inside out, doubting themselves, fearful to leave their children and maybe possibly have to share custody. 
being cut off financially, all of these things, being isolated from friends and family are the reason that people have a hard time leaving. And when you are fiercely intelligent, empathetic, never, never quit and always win, then you stick around to try to fix that relationship. And it's done in conjunction with an abuser telling you, oh, sweet pea, no one's ever loved me like you do. I had a horrible first marriage and my family never showed up with me. And you, you are making me want to be a better man. You are healing all of that. You take that combination of those buckets in an individual and it just primes a person up perfectly for anyone who is solely determined to be nothing but cruel. Does that make sense so far? Yeah. I, yeah. It's just amazing. Um, you know, obviously I haven't experienced myself, but, uh, you know, I met you at the same time as a few other people that run some shelters in the area. Uh, also introduced to Jen Toro, who's very um, mm -hmm. involved in uh, Moscow, if I'm pronouncing that acronym correctly. Um, yeah. So it's just amazing uh, to me. And I think you have that, the, the I mean, you, you've told the story, uh, how you got there, but it, it even went deeper into the, you know, the dark web, I think. And so maybe bring that out because that's the part um, besides having really haven't heard of successful people like yourself going through that abuse. The whole dark web thing was just what I was just floored by and like i said being from new york i thought i knew all the crazy stuff that could happen to somebody but that's i'm glad that you're bringing that component to light there's a great really great webinar that was done by domesticshelters.org and it was done in 11 11 of 2021 and it specifically covers the type of abuse that i escaped from if anyone wants to listen to that you can go back and find that webinar because this, what I'm about to explain is a really big part of abuse that no one talks about. And what started my escape plan was four weeks before we were set to take off to New York. Uh, we had several meetings with, with the minister. We had booked Grand Central Station. We we're going to get married on the platform of Grand Central Station everything paid for, friends aligned. And we got home from a wine tasting and he said to me, sweet pea, I think I've done something that's going to make you really mad. And I said, okay, what's that? And he opened up his computer and he showed me an exchange that he'd been having with random strangers that he had met on Craigslist. He had given them what I did for a living. He had given them my picture. He told them where we lived where our kids went to school. Now, I was fortunate that I did not share any children with him, but where our kids went to school and without my knowledge and without my consent, he was offering me up to have sex with these people. So I read this and I said, oh, no, 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 I'm not mad. I am livid. Get out of my house. And his response was typical for anyone who's ever experienced abuse, you're going to, this is going to resonate. He said, oh, sure. See, I knew you were going to be mad. I knew you were going to be livid with me. And now we're going to have spent all night long talking about how you're upset. And this is all your fault that you're mad that I did this. 
Great, Carolyn. I don't even have the capacity to stay up all night talking to you about how mad you are and how upset you are and just started to blame me. And usually that would have sent me into this defense mode of pointing out how horrible his actions were and, and defending myself. And I didn't. There's this little voice on my right ear. I don't know if it was my dog in heaven, Casper. I don't know if it was grandparents, if it was angels that said, shh, 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 just be quiet, just be quiet. And I waited, I climbed back in bed. Um, I waited for him to fall asleep. And when he did, I took his computer and I brought it to our kitchen. And what I first discovered when I opened was his computer was so horrific that I thought, well, that can't possibly be true. Um, that must be spam. And I closed his computer and I was heading back to bed when that voice came again and said, mm, no, 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 go back. And I did. And what I found was that for the entirety of our relationship, and that this is something he had been doing previous to me as well, without my con uh, knowledge and without my consent, he had been putting me out on the internet to have sex with other people. So how do you do that? Well, you belong to a group like he did that taught men how to drug and incapacitate their girlfriends or their wives and watch and film while they were raped by other people. I also discovered on his computer that on nights when he would ask me to get dressed up and go out to dinner and sweet pea, you've been traveling and and let's go out. I'm taking you to the best restaurant that you love. We're going to 801 Chop House. Get dressed up. We're going to have dinner. He would have also contacted four to five men to be stationed around that same restaurant to check me out. All of those emails, starting with, my girlfriend has no idea I'm doing this, and I will facilitate what could be done to her. I finally discovered on his computer that there were nights I did not remember. Experiences that I had no recollection of. Our back, our bedroom, we lived in a, in a 4,000 plus square foot home. Our back bedroom opened up to the backyard and had its own separate entrance. Our normal habit when I was home and not traveling was for us to climb in bed together and we would have sex and he would bring me a glass of wine. Now I don't know what was in that wine all those times. During the course of this relationship, there were things in my body that didn't seem right. There were things I would go to the doctor and I'd say, I don't, I don't know, something doesn't seem right here. I'm having some issues, but if they're not explainable, did I maybe work out too hard? Did I maybe forget to change clothes and things were sweaty because there were parts of my anatomy that just didn't seem right. Never would I have thought, you know what I think he's doing, Jeff, is I think he's drugging me and people are sneaking in my back door to rape me. And had I thought that, people would have thought I was crazy. I had zero evidence. I had zero inkling that that could be part of the equation. And I just did a podcast with a, a therapist, a psychotherapist, and she said, she pointed out to me, again, because this is common and this is what she deals with, she said, Carolyn, there are so many women who come and say, I think this is happening to me, 
they are labeled as delusional and they are further compromised because their gut feeling is being ignored by the very people they're going to for help. And she said, most likely had you come to us, we would have labeled you as severely delusional and might even have put you on a psychiatric hold for three days. This type of what was happening to me is what started an escape plan that took me about 10 days to craft and about seven months to implement. And during that seven days of crafting the escape plan, I could not eat anything in our home. I had to eat or drink before I ever got home because I was never going to take anything from our home to consume, nor was I going to ever allow him to hand me something to eat. And it's that point that the trauma of what had happened compromised my health, my health and teed me up for a very long journey of healing and my body keeping the score of that kind of abuse. Well, yeah. And you've not only had to heal emotionally, uh, mentally, but physically because of the being drugged, right? Right. Right. That so was, that, that was components were so traumatizing. And I talk about this because not only was I crafting an escape plan, but I was sneaking out secretly to go see the police. I was trying to find someone from the FBI to help me. I had countless doctor appointments because I have been checked out head to toe, top to bottom for every um, sexually transmitted disease. I've had to find safety. He had people in our home that I don't know. Do they know who I am? If they've seen my car, do they know what it looks like? Who are these people? They've been in my home. They've seen pictures of my children. If they saw a bill of tuition on the on the counter, they know where they go to school. All of those elements left me writing my name on a yellow post-it because I couldn't remember my name. I living out of my car once I escaped because I was constantly threatened with text messages of, you know, sweet pea, I'll find you and we'll die together. Or sweet pea, I'm watching our videos tonight. And I didn't know we had any videos. So taunting me and taunting me at the same time, I'm trying to stay safe. And I have fabulous friends and my kids are amazing. And I did often stay with my kids. I'd park far away and walk. Thankfully, my daughter had just moved and we were hoping he didn't quite know where she lived. But I didn't stay with them often because if he was going to kill me, the chances that he would kill everybody else were great. I want to go back to the beginning of the story when he told you, and he said, you know, sweetie, you're going to be mad when I tell you this. And it was, you know, you're getting married in four weeks and, you know, you're, you might be expecting, you know, I forgot to pay the florist or something exactly. like that. So for somebody to react that way, not only teeing it up that you might be mad when I tell you this, as well as, you know, the when you're livid, which obviously is a, a normal reaction, that there, there is it the ego thing that is just so big that they just, oh, I'm not going to talk about this. You're, you're, you know, you're reacting crazy. I, you know, it's like, it's not like he forgot to take out the garbage or skip the mortgage payment. Like, exactly. is, is that the, you know, the 
prototype of the uh, the personality? It is. It's the prototype of an abuser. It's as if they've been given this handbook that they follow because abusers tend to think that they are way better than most everybody else. And it's as if they're following this playbook. And one of the main ways that folks are lulled in and dismantled from the inside out is the constant, well, this is all your fault. And how dare you react this way to how I'm treating you. And that makes... I'll use me as an example, made me defend myself. And all of a sudden, when you start defending yourself, the spotlight moves from the actions of the abuser to the person who's defending themselves. Because all the abuser is going to do is go, see, you're doing it again. See, you're mad again. See, you're going to want to talk about this again. You can't take a joke. Oh, you're mad about this? That's a typical reaction for what abusers do in order to deflect from their actions, put the focus on the on the person they're actively targeting, and then back out of the situation which has occurred. Uh, it, it, uh, like I said, it's just an incredible, incredible story. And you said that was um, seven years ago? 20, uh, March of 2016. Right. March of 2016. And I think both your companies started at that point too, right? So that was just an immediate. They did. Yeah. They did. I could not, Jeff, I could not have imagined what those companies would be. I couldn't at that point imagine a life I did not live in fear. I couldn't imagine, I couldn't imagine ever feeling safe. I couldn't imagine how I was even going to keep working. All I knew is that if I didn't immediately start going to therapy and I didn't immediately start talking about what was happening, and if I didn't immediately start to write things down for myself, then I was going to stay stuck in that point of constant fear and inaction. And even if it meant I did some of those things every day, even if it meant I had to take two naps in order to even function, even if it meant I some days took me four steps back, I did it. And there were two things that came about from that time. One was my, I did scare my children quite a bit because if I was having a panic attack, it didn't matter where I was driving. I would pull over, even if I was on the highway. I remember one time I was on 435, um, out there by uh, Legacy. And I was so, and it's very busy out there with all the ways the different highways come into that area. I pulled off the highway and I got out of my car and I did this often. I would physically force myself to take two steps forward and one step back and breathe, almost like a dance. Big breath, two steps forward, one step back, breathe, because I needed to reset my body. And that became a habit for me. And once I did that, I could start better documenting. And I, I voice recorded while I drove. I, I, anything I could do to start documenting what was happening and the tools and resources I was coming upon myself, but most importantly, what I thought was missing from the equation in my own journey. And that, that third part is the missing equation of my own journey that led to safeinharmsway.org and epizonstrategy.com because I've realized how different I was in the equation from anybody's perceptions, but not really different in reality of who experiences abuse. 
And I thought about all the components that were missing from my journey that I could develop and bring to other people. Yes, it started there. The reality of when it actually started was as I began to heal. But the genesis of it was all right in those immediate appointments and those immediate um, interactions and the immediate escape plan. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I'm a big believer in therapy, and I think most people, whether they get it or not, need it. Exactly. <laughs> but, so I can't imagine, like, you know, you just having gone through it myself, you know, I'm dealing with, you know, typical things uh, you go to therapy for, right? But, I mean, you're dealing with such a traumatic, on every level, emotionally, physically, mentally, uh, your mother, uh, you know, your your children are affected by it, right? Because you're affected by it. Right. How old were your kids uh, in 16? Let's see. My my youngest was getting ready to graduate from high school. My middle son was getting ready to go into his senior year of college. And my daughter was working on her master's degree. Okay. And one of the things that fueled all our healing at that point is that people believed us when we started talking about it. And that's a huge call out. There were many ways in this story. I did not win the lottery. Many, many ways. One of the ways I won the lottery is people believed me. And if someone didn't believe me, or if someone didn't quite know what to do, I always thanked them for their time and said, who else can I talk to, do you think? Because I had to realize that this story is so egregious. How could you believe it? Except I had all the evidence. Right. I had everything. And even in this journey, what I've learned about survivors of, of navigating currently or sur- trying to survive it, people don't believe them. And, and what you hear often is, again, I'm using the male-female pronouns, well, he always seems nice to me. Right? I right? I, I mean, think about that. Do Would anybody who's going to be mean, cruel, disrespectful, and egregious in their behavior do it in public? Of course this person has been nice to you. That's part of the facade. That facade has to be created in order to keep doing what is being done behind closed doors. That's how this works. Yeah, it's almost like the um, you know TV ministers that get caught yes. cheating on their wives, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, and there is a beautiful component of being believed. Uh, I can give an example for my daughter. My daughter was working um, at Children's Mercy Hospital, and when I talk to corporations, I give Children's Mercy Hospital the we have different standards that we measure at Epizon, and I give them the gold our gold level status. So she was running a, a clinic for kids on the ADHD spectrum. And she was heading up that clinic and it was an outdoor clinic. And Children's Mercy did what we teach people to do at Epizon, which is they handled and crafted a safety plan for her, for the fellow employees and for the kids. So they immediately got together as a group, planned a safety plan And they're right on target to do that because statistically, if someone is going to show up to harm another, they take out 20% extra collateral. And when abusers show up at work, and if you think about it, 
if they don't know any place else that someone lives, they do know where they work. That 20% is in the form of human lives of coworkers. So Children's Mercy kept my daughter employed, kept her safe, kept their facility safe, kept the kids safe, kept everybody safe with a safety plan and an alert should somebody show up that was not expected or known. That was beautiful. The UCM, uh, University of Central Missouri, where my kids went to school, put extra details on my on all of the children. They knew their class schedules. And so they would, the security detail will drive around and check on my kids when they were in their dorms and when they were going from class to class. And they knew the class schedule. Stellar humans, stellar humans. It even goes down to uh, as simple as it sounds, but this always, Jeff, this part just gets me every time. My son, my youngest, graduating from high school, and they have a yearbook. And the yearbook has parents take out ads. And we had taken a full page ad out as a family. And one day I got this call from the, the receptionist at his school and said, I've been thinking about your family situation. You got that ad. And the yearbook's already gone to print. She called the yearbook company. The yearbook company ran a separate yearbook for my son to remove the ad so that the yearbook he got did not include any reference to the people that we had escaped from. Wow. Rising up in kindness like that. Amazing. Amazing. And as a family, we are fortunate in that. And again, it's a way I won the lottery that most people don't get. No, I mean, that's incredible uh, how people did that and protected your children. I mean, I just, uh, like I said, it's just something I had never heard of before. Um, So it's 2016, you're going through, you found Safe in Harm's Way and Epizon. Thank you for the, it's the Latin term. Uh, you said uh, Greek, Greek, Greek term okay. for survivor. Okay. Is that your uh, heritage, Greek? Uh, no, but oh. it makes me happy because I, I think you have an, uh, a little pathway on that okay. <laughs> and background and understanding. So yeah, it's, um, it's, it's, uh, I just thought, okay, if I'm going to have a powerful, I was always a big fan of Greek mythology and I thought, that strikes home for me. So I'm going to do some homework on, on words that would align. Well, you definitely have, I mean, you're, you're a hero and you have a heroic journey. So that goes back to Greek mythology and Homer and all that good stuff. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's just, I guess, I mean, what you've done and where you've come from. um, Yeah. It's, it's amazing. I'm very fortunate. I, I, every Friday morning, I do a meditation with people across the world. We met in 2020 during lockdown uh, in a group that just got together to talk about what your wildest dreams would be and how do you achieve it. And from there, we have a regular Friday morning meditation. We usually about 45 people from across the world who get together. And this morning's meditation was reflecting on what you've done in 2023 and, or in 2022. And I have to say, I, I'm very emotional very emotional. We took Safe in Harm's Way and we launched two campaigns to end isolation as a form of abuse by taking our message on billboards across the country. 
because the one way an abuser cannot control what somebody sees as far as gaining access to resource is what you see when you're driving or you're in a clinic office or you're picking up your prescription or you're in a cab or a bus or a subway or on a train. And those billboards have launched in Times Square and then spread across the country, even at gas station kiosks. You know, the videos that sometimes gas stations have where the you're you're pumping gas and it's giving you a, a commercial off the, the gas pump, we're there as well. And that campaign was called the last I'm sorry.com. And then we morphed that campaign to feeling dash small.com dash being the actual symbol, not the word. And it is the only we created the only never done before website that allows people to self-identify on how they view themselves and what they are currently experiencing through a series of questions on a completely benign website. And then at the end, they are given one to two immediate resources that they can act on. Because we know that if someone has that moment that we we call it a 2 a.m. moment where it is quiet and you are thinking, I, something is wrong in my relationship or you've actually been hit again, anything, you can immediately have an actionable step. Because if we don't get people at that point, then what starts over is the, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry, I should have never done this. Here's another set of flowers. Let's go on vacation. You're so incredible. You are making me a better man. I can't really be a good man without you. To abuse, that cycle starts again. And if we don't get people at that quiet moment, before the love bombing starts, before the I'm so sorry starts, before the more flowers and trips and candy starts, people stay. And those two sites, the last I'm sorry.com and feeling dash small.com is built for men. It's built for women. It's built for people of color. It has aspects for folks in the LGBTQIA plus community. It's built for people who are medically compromised and people who have English as a second language, because the dynamics of all those individuals are far different in the services they need to be immediate and actionable. And so it's tailor-made for them with two safety features. If you click on the the top button, it closes down the browser and that browser doesn't even open for another 72 hours, which means you can go to bed and someone can't sneak up on your computer or your iPhone behind you and check out what you were looking at. That's all been built so that we can reach people in those 2 a.m. moments, hopefully to help find them safety for themselves, their children, and their pets. And when we did it in 2022, we made over 1 billion impressions and opportunities for people to get help by being outside on outdoor media. Yeah, I remember your Instagram and LinkedIn and uh, the like um, for that event, which is incredible. So to have 1 billion impressions, uh, so who was your support team and partners in this uh, it's just incredible and i do want to get into a lot of your instagram is dancing so i, I you're almost like the ellen of the corporate world you know <laughs> ellen was famous for her dancing on her show so um we need to talk about that a little later on but tell, tell who's who are your partners in this fantastic phenomenal event 
It starts with two local Missouri men, uh, Vince Miller, who ran DDI Media in St. Louis, and um, your friend, Bob, who runs Lamar Advertising. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I I don't even know how Bob came up in one of our conversations. Yeah. Yeah, Bob's fantastic. He's yeah, uh, Bob Fessler, right? Yeah, yeah. Of, uh, yeah, he's a yeah, he's a golf buddy. He, he's a close friend with my uh, close friend, who actually was a guest on the podcast, also. Oh, cool! Uh, Great. Um, so yeah, Bob. Yeah, that's right. So Bob, uh, from a billboard perspective, right? Exactly. Yeah. Wow. And they, those men, Vince started it out, and he gave he called me one day. Or he didn't call me. I had messaged him on LinkedIn. He, growing up, our kids grew up together, and Vince always manned the barbecue pit at any school event. I'm a St. Louis girl, have been in in Kansas City for 13 years. And one random day, I shot Vince a message, and I said, gosh, Kansas City has amazing barbecue, but there is no one that burns hot dogs like you, because I like a burnt hot dog. (laughs) And uh, he responded and said, Carolyn, I do more than burn hot dogs. Don't know if you know this, but I actually run a company of outdoor media. And he said, I've been, it, it was the start of COVID. And he said, I've been thinking about you and safe in harm's way. And what could you do with billboards? And I said, Vince, I've got a million ideas. He said, well, I'll give you eight billboards. I'm like, great. I'll get back to you. Know exactly what I'm going to do. And I hung up and I had zero idea of what I was going to do. <laughs> none, none whatsoever. I just was not going to say no to free and advertising. Then I went back to him and I, by that time I had created a playlist. I wanted to set a vibe. I, you talked about music. That's my jam. Uh, I had done a whole spreadsheet of what I thought I could do. PowerPoint. I said, this is what I want to do. And by the way, I don't know how to do any of this on outdoor media. So um, Vince helped me craft the first campaign and we launched it in St. Louis and we increased the access to our services by 312% just with eight billboards. And then I started the list of sentences I never thought I'd heard, which was Molly Rose, who was the Fox News anchor in St. Louis, called me and she said, hey, we've got a helicopter out flying around St. Louis trying to find your billboards. Do you have the exact locations? <laughs> it's like. Let me write that down. That is a sentence I never thought I would hear, a question I never imagined that I would get in my life. And here I am telling the coordinates of billboards. And so I said to Vince, who do you know in Kansas City? And he introduced me to Bob. Bob gave me two billboards and we saw an increase by about 117% of access to services at safeandharmsway.org. Then Vince said to me, I'd like you to pitch this um, campaign that we've been doing with the data and to the Out of Home Advertising Association, OAAA, which is the umbrella organization for everyone who owns billboards. And Carolyn, he is probably not going to to take your logo, your colors, anything. But if you'll do it for the broader good of advocacy against domestic violence and finding resources for survivors, I'm sure they would be all over that. So I had a meeting with a name a man named Stephen Friedis. Uh, by the end of that meeting, I again gave him a playlist to set the vibe. I created a PowerPoint, so I used all the data. And at the end, I've been a lifelong salesperson. I said, Bob, I, I'd like my brand on billboards across the United States so that survivors can find immediate and actionable resources when they need them most. And he said, there's a long pause. And he said, Okay, get me your colors, get me your fonts, get me what you want to do uh, by Monday. And I was like, I got it. 
no worries, get it to you by Monday. Hung up with Stephen, or logged off from Zoom, called Vince and said, Vince, I have zero idea what to do with to get everything I need to get to Stephen by Monday. And Vince uh, gave a young graduate, a female graduate, her first chance at a national campaign with his company. And they did this all pro bono. And we launched then with a, a an exclusive in Forbes. And, and that just exploded. That that just exploded our message, our services across the country. We were on kiosks and in, in, on the Las Vegas script, uh, strip and and everywhere across the United States. So those were our main partners. And then I asked, I went back to Stephen and I said, I'd like this. I'd like four more shots at this. I'd like to have a continuing campaign. And he said, okay, okay, great here. Now I got to create that. And I actually did something that's not done in domestic violence, which is shocking to me. Didn't know this. People don't collaborate. People don't want to work together. I think it's from what I hear, a competition for grants or a competition for space a competition for awareness. And so rather than combine and collaborate, they don't want to. There's, there's, I used an organization in Kansas City when I escaped. Um, that organization won't even return my phone calls. You'd think I'd be their poster child for success. Wow. Um, so we, I went to an organization I loved, which is domesticshelters.org. And I love them because they have a search engine that you plug in your zip code and up pops every available resource that someone can need. And it's vetted, it's verified, it's local, which is really important as far as local resources, local laws, local contacts. And I said, would you do this with me? And they said, you know what? We've had this advertising agency in New York wanting to work with us for two years and we could never figure out a way to do it. Do you think they'd be interested in outdoor media? <laughs> so in the most beautiful way, we started to build this network. And I... I am Ron Markle's daughter, and that man was a connector. And that was all uh, my wired DNA to bring that all together. The rest is is history. Neon is the, the company we work with from a PR standpoint. They're part of IPG Health, which is around about, I think at last count, 23 different corporations across the globe. And Neon works with us to craft our messages. We were, I was able to... Um, bring everybody to the table to get us in Times Square. And it's the first time any company within IPG Health has been on billboards in Times Square. And and we did it. And it's um it's that has been the the biggest highlight of my career is getting to bring something to Times Square and getting to collaborate with incredibly intelligently fierce people and bring the services that are desperately needed to folks who have zero idea that they're even there until they see it on a billboard. And then they have the ability to tap in, log on, and safely get what they need. It's like the uh, Frank Sinatra, New York, New York song. You know, if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. But I, it's just, yeah, I just remember the pictures and the, uh, just a phenomenal event. And just so what is the plan uh, for 2023? Where do you where do you go from uh, that event to what's next? We have a couple plans. We'll have two more campaigns that are in line with the last I'm sorry.com and feeling dash small. 
When safe and harm's way, you will never see a battered and bruised, per bruised person ever. You'll see art, poetry, and music, and you'll see something beautiful that a person could look at and go, wow, what is that? Because we know that if I put somebody battered and bruised through the data collection, which I've been doing from the beginning, you can blame 30 years of pharmaceutical sales and data-driven sales with collecting data like this. People deflect, even if they're covered in bruises themselves. Well, that's, that's not that bad. At least he didn't strangle me as they are wearing a turtleneck in June to hide the marks. It doesn't matter if they're covered in marks. People deflect of it's not that bad or I don't look like her or I don't look like him. So we don't do that. We talk about feelings. Again, I would have never identified as being abused, but I could have told you about the sadness, the worry, the lies, the screaming, the fear, the pain. Could have told you all about that. So if we talk about abuse and call that out, people deflect. They don't log in. But if we create something of beauty, there are design houses. It amazes me. The same people that work at Disney, the same people that work on huge brands like Nike and Pepsi are the same people that volunteered their services to make the lighting on our billboards sparkle. So this is truly a worldwide event of people hearing about my story, of people hearing about what we've done, of people looking at our concepts and saying, yes, I want to be a part of that. And then doing it for free. Amazing. When folks feel as if they're all alone and there is nobody to help. I know that feeling. And I can also raise my hand and say, the minute you start talking about it to the right people, and keep talking about it when the when the right, wrong people don't listen, but finding the right people, you there are folks who want to help. There are people who will rise to the occasion to say, how can I do it? And everything about safeandharmsway.org and Epizon strategy, that's it. That's how we're built. And we are so fortunate to be holding hands with those kinds of folks across the world to help change it. Yeah, I mean, and it's something you said earlier, too. And again, uh, I'm just uh, beginning to learn about all this. But, you know, you mentioned uh, billboards in Vegas, and you would think, you know, kind of the the love bombs are taking their partners to Vegas. as yes. part of, But then stuff, I'm sure, happens there. Yes. Um, because, you know, it's a, just a popular destination. And it seems these people would be drawn to it as part of the allure of being, you know, the love bomb. Uh, right. Things. Yeah. You nailed it, Jeff. I, I don't know how many trips we took to Vegas. Yeah. Many. And for folks to be able to see again at that intimate private moment of their own pain, when something flashes across their brain of gosh, that's just, this is not right that you can see something that would inspire you to find help for yourself, your children, and your pets. It, I love Times Square and that we premiered there. Vegas was it for me because of exactly what you just said. It's where it happened to me all the time. It's where I'm sure it happens to countless people, the big trip to make everything okay, but the violence does not stay home. It travels with you from city to city. And in my case, the story we talked about of how and why I escaped. He did that across the country every time we traveled. If the FBI could have found where he was doing this in exchange for money or for trade, 
he would have been charged with 32 counts of interstate sex trafficking. They never could find the trail of money. I don't really know if he was doing it for money or just because that's what he wanted to have him thrilled by my pain. Yeah, it's it's incomprehensible, really. And I just uh, um, when you were in Vegas, for this event, I mean, do memories come up that I mean, that that had to be yeah. traumatic and you're in the middle of this beautiful event that's going to help you know, many, many people. I mean, how did you deal with that while you're trying to launch <laughs> these, you know, this great thing? I, I am really glad for that question because there are certain things after this, for example, when we booked the podcast, I will take an hour after this to decompress, to remove the connection of having to talk about that person and these experiences. I do that. Yesterday, I spoke in front of 150 people at a major health organization system out on the West Coast. I did it. I did it twice the week before with large multinational companies talking online. Whether I'm online or in person, I take those moments afterwards to recenter myself, reconnect to my healing, reconnect to myself and disconnect from any of the situation previously. I do that and there are still times I have really bad days. That webinar I talked about that was done by domesticshelters.org back in November of 2021, I thought I got this. Like this was my life. This is what happened to me. I am I am working so hard and actively healing. I got this. And that webinar sent me in bed for 3 days. So people think that the evolution of of healing that if they take steps backwards or if they have some day or days in a row that they just can't function, that they're doing it wrong or that they're failing in their healing process. And I'm here to say that is not the case. Healing is not linear. My very dear sister friend, Kathy, always says, and she is an internationally recognized uh, medical professional, that healing is not linear. It is highs and lows all of it. So that's part of the process. I find the biggest amount of joy in myself, even in those moments, because I am still breathing, because I am still standing, because I am still doing good in the world. And my kids and I, we call it being intentionally fearless because that person's still alive. There's stories all the time about people showing up, but we have agency in the intentionality of how we are fearless when we show up in the world. So we take all the precautions, we do all the things, we ensure our safety, and then we continue on in that healing process. It's always going to be a tennis match back and forth. Uh, there's so many things unravel in what you just said. Uh, you know, there's uh, Brendan uh, Bouchard's High Performance Habit book. Mm-hmm. He's a he's a big proponent of you know separating what you just did. And preparing for your next event. So was that a meeting? And that's just from a leadership being, you know, fully engaged in what you're doing and next and, and having some decompression time between, you know, we're in a constant cycle of meetings, especially on Zoom. There is almost seems like there's more with, you know, the remote uh, work. But what you're saying about, you know, what you're you're brilliant in the sense that you're taking the time and you need it 
and realizing you need it to separate, you know, it has to be traumatic and people grieve. I was um, a day before my fifth birthday, my birth mother died of cancer. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, you know, I was so young. I, I, I didn't realize what happened. My dad remarried literally one year later to, wow, yeah. uh, but I, I grieved when I was 42 years old. Yeah. I, I, I got, I got, I was separated, got divorced. And when I moved into this small apartment, um, I, I would, I, I had all these memories of my mother, not, not just memories, but just a missing thing. So mm-hmm. it's, it's, yeah, you're constantly grieving and like, you know, I've, five to 42 that's 37 years before i grieve my mother's death i mean so i again and that was just obviously a a traumatic event but it was just one and you have you have to relive countless uh and 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 grieve and and so i just i I, god i just i I, you're one of my heroes for sure and and what you've done so Thank you. Yeah. And I'm glad we're talking about it. And thank yeah. you for how you just shared yourself and and having that courage, because I'm sure anybody hearing that story feels less alone in the world. Sure. It's vital to be able to have the conversations of what we all deal with. And it's also vital for perspective. So I could sit around and say, oh, my gosh, again, I'm and, and don't get me wrong. There are days I do like I have to do this again. Or when I'm when I'm better and faster on the draw on those days, I can say I'm being a good leader right now of myself and my organizations by distancing myself from just what occurred so I can focus on what we have to do next. That's leadership. So personal, professional leadership in the form of healing, in the form of how you show up to the people that you work with. It's a get to then versus, oh my gosh, I have to again. Yeah, I love the get to, uh, you know, not a to-do list of things I get to do. I, exactly. I don't know who I learned that from, but we just had a, um, one of the things I do is I work for the Institute for Management Studies, IMS. We do leadership development curriculum. We partner with 200 thought leaders on um, anything from conflict management, difficult conversations, how to be strategic, how to have a you know leadership presence. So, uh, leadership presence by Carol, uh, Dr. Carol Goman was a recent one, and I learned this probably midway through my management leadership career, working for every t-shirt size company from four people to over a million. It's it's how you show up. So you you can be you know, every doing your best is relative. Your best is relative on any given day, but how you show up, and it, it never occurred to me like I, I could be down, but I can't appear down mm-hmm. because they, your your people, your team members, they draw on you, and so yeah, you can have bad days, and you can tell people, hey, I, I got three hours sleep last night. I woke up, and I. So I'm a little tired, but you know, you, cause you're being authentic, you're being genuine, right. but you, you know, you still have to portray, you know, cause every time you open your mouth, you're auditioning for leadership. Exactly. 
And that was one of her quotes. So I, I, th- I think it's very important uh, and it's hard, right? And not everybody wants to lead and it's a, you know, it's a, it's a art and a, and a science. Exactly. Um, so I, I, like I said, it's just, especially what you do uh, both for your, for purpose and your kind of more from a corporate perspective in your two different organizations. It's, you know, because you're in the space where people, you know, you're helping people. Right. In different ways. Right. But the same, you know, victim. Exactly. Exactly. And it's really important to have those kinds of conversations, as you were saying, being authentic and who you are and how it shows up. And and that authenticity as a leader can also extend in the recognition of what you see in other people when they're having a bad day or they're having there something's going on is to not look at the person as a failure, but to look at what is happening that is changing or fueling that behavior. There, there is nothing that makes me more excited when I get a leader from an organization who calls and says, I've got this employee, stellar performance, all of a sudden missing meetings, forgetting about key important details, rattling off a whole list of things. I think this is trauma related. How can I have that conversation? I just could, I, I want to jump through the phone and, and cheer with that person because they're realizing this person's behavior has been a certain way. Now that's changed. What can I do to help that whole person show up at work? Because that's what you really should do. Everybody brings to work their whole person self. So if something is starting to miss, something is starting to to not be, not work instead of saying, oh my gosh, she's just blowing it off. Or he's, you know, he's been with us for five years. Now I guess he's quietly quitting. No, you invest in the person and say, I've noticed a change. How can I help you? And that's easy. You don't have to have the answers. And I say it's easy because it is. Don't overthink it. You don't have to have all the answers prepared for what they're about to say, but you do have to, as a good human, show up and say, I've noticed a difference. Would you like to talk about what's happening? And what are two things I can provide you as a leader that would help you right now in life and at work? And then shut up and let them tell you. And if you don't have the answers of what they need, thank you so much for telling this to me. I appreciate it. All kept in confidence. I have a battle plan. I'm going to find the answers for you and I'll get back to you within five days. Does that work for you? So I got to do. hundred percent. I mean, it's so important to get to know the person as a leader. I'm always shocked at people that leaders that don't, I don't know if they're leaders, they're probably managers. Yes. Um, So it's just, what, that's the first thing I look if somebody's performance goes down that's the first thing I think about is something is going on with them personally exactly it has it usually has nothing to do with work like exactly. it's not like they work with some jerk and that they've checked out it's always something one um a person now that's a close friend we were uh worked together at Sprint PCS and we were a startup you know, lots of work to do, you know, crazy hours. And we were both early birds. We would get to the office 630, 615. Mm-hmm. And we would just talk. So she took me aside 
six thirty in the morning one morning and said, uh, "My mom is dying of cancer." Mm. Uh, her mom was from. Uh, they grew up. She grew up on the farm in Lexington, Missouri area. And I said, first thing I said, I said, "Amy, look, your mom is your most important thing. We'll figure it out." Exactly. So we'll do what we can. I'll do everything I can to support you because that's the most important thing you can deal. And she passed. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, but uh, we we became close friends to this day. So that was like 1996, 97. Wow. And we're still friends. But I mean, it's just, you know, it has nothing to do with what we're trying to do at Sprint BCS. <laughs> we're not, right. You know, <laughs> that's not the important things in life. So exactly, exactly. Yeah. And that's, that breeds pop profitability within a corporation because you're not dealing with turnover. Then you're not dealing with having to train and hire and recruit new people. You're, you're allowing that tiny moment of time to be processed by the individual, offering them resources, keeping them employed and doing their job. And, and that's where the company benefits. And that's where the reputation and culture is created as well. hundred percent. So it's a it's I think the last sentence on your about uh, uh, about section on the safe and harm's way, but it, it's kind of like, oh yeah, and I also had a near death experience. <laughs> <laughs> so outside of everything else that has happened to you, <laughs> and you and you were uh, I watched the clip from KCTV five. Uh, you were going out to help people in Africa. So why, yeah. why don't you tell the listeners your story there? Well, there's a an element, there's a great book um, called The Body Keeps the Score. And your body does keep the score of traumas and, and what has happened to you. In my case, I'm not aware. My brain is doing a great job of, of not really letting through what's gone on. Now, I could do some different therapies with my brain to evoke memories, but statistically, 75% of those memories are false. So I, I'm okay in handling with what I'm doing. The physical part of my body, though, uh, that trauma manifested in the form of, uh, I was on my way home from working for two weeks in Africa, working with women who had been horrifically abused, lots of familial rape, uh, resulting in HIV infections. And, but they were part of an organization and becoming leaders. And the organization realized these are incredible women who've lived through horrific things, but we see in them the potential to be great leaders in our organization. How do we help them? So I went over there to help with the organization as a whole and then to do training for women who were growing into leadership positions. And on the way home on the plane, I, uh, I didn't feel good. I told my daughter the next day, I don't know if I just passed out because I was so tired or I passed out, but I woke up and I was drenched head to toe. My body had let loose of everything. I thought, surely I have some kind of horrible virus. This is many moons before COVID. And I thought, I'm not going to say anything to anybody. I'm also going to try not to breathe on anybody, but I'll be damned if I'm going to raise my hand because I don't want this plane landing back in Africa and me stuck there with God knows what, for how long. And I had an 18 hour flight ahead of me. And I, I ultimately made it back to Kansas city. And you'd have to, at that point, I talked earlier when in our discussions about being believed when I escaped, I also showed up at the emergency room 
um, very, very sick. And my heart had stopped beating for about 12 seconds. And my cardiologist, who I never knew before that day when he walked in my office, as soon as the person left that I was trying to escape from, I word vomited everything, everything. Never met the man before. And he believed me. So because he believed me, he said, I'm going to keep you for the weekend. We'll give you four days in the hospital because I can't do your surgery till next week. So instead of sending you home, we're going to monitor you for four days in the hospital. That gives you four days where you can eat and drink without worrying of what's in your food. You can crack the escape plan and on Monday. I'm going to insert in you a battery operated monitor that will keep track of your heart. And we're going to tell him that if your heart starts beating for any reason, that immediately police and ambulance are dispatched via GPS to your location because that tracker also tracks you as a GPS. In other words, we're going to tag you like a dog is what we're going to tell him and monitor your every action. And that helped save me. And it helped save me in 2018 because when I died, that device caught my death. Uh, my heart stopped beating for 47 seconds and it did not return to normal for another 75. And when it happened, it all, when I got home, that all fed in my cardiology um, office. They thought surely they could see where eventually my heart resumed, but they thought for sure I was brain dead on the floor and had just been laying there. They sent the police to my, to my home. And within 90 minutes, I was in surgery and they were installing pacemakers. Had that not happened at the way at what my heart was doing, just there's nothing wrong with my heart at all. It just decides to stop beating. And the accumulation of trauma and effect on my body is the theory on why it stops. Now it can't. Now that pacemaker kicks in and protects me and keeps my heart beating. But I, 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 know why I'm alive. The reason I'm struggling with the words, I, I don't want to say I don't know why I'm alive. I know why I'm alive. I know what I'm meant to do. I know that when I was in this other space that seemed to be about eight hours long, that it was filled with no light. I didn't have a bright light, but I had just peace and calm and beauty. And this voice that said, do you want to go back? And I said, I have a lot of work to do. And the voice said, yeah, do. And with that, it was like a tunnel sucking me back in and popped up on the plane. And so now, because I was believed in 2016 by a stranger who didn't know me, and he helped me craft that part of my escape plan, I'm alive because in 2018, when my heart stopped, they knew that there was something desperately wrong with my heart to randomly keep stop beating to continue to stop beating, I should say, at random intervals and um, installed a pacemaker and regular follow-up that keeps me alive today. Yeah, incredible. Just incredible. Um, well, I could see that we're going to have a, a second uh, a podcast session uh, later on down the road, <laughs> but I, I don't want to keep you too much longer. How could, uh, you know, hopefully this is going to go out to millions of people, but uh, you know, you only need one to help, but uh, how could people help you ha help safe in harm's way? How do they get a hold of you? Uh, sure. All that good stuff. Sure. So people can contact me at info at safe in harm's way.org. 
And that's the easiest way to reach me that gets me to both the Epicenter side and the Safe and Harm's Way side. People can follow along every social media platform, safeandharmsway.org. And um, on LinkedIn, we are there for Epizone Strategy Solutions. Engagement like this, anybody hearing this podcast who says or thinks, you know, I've always wondered about my neighbor, or I've always wondered if my coworker, or I know this happened to my sister or my brother, send them a podcast. You do not have to have an in-depth conversation. If you're feeling this way, but you're not sure, you can say, "I gosh, I listened to this incredible podcast. You should check this out. Let me know what you think. Just plant the seed. Just lead with love. Just stick around, even if somebody stays and you wish they would leave. Because the minute you walk away, the minute you don't engage, is the minute that someone doesn't know that it's okay to share their story or that there are resources, or that there are solutions to the other side of what they're currently dealing and living with. So that's the best way is, is to help share safe and harm's way. And, and we do that a lot with the hashtags because you never know, or the hashtag I share because I care. Some folks don't want to share because they think, oh my God, everybody's going to think I'm an abusive relationship. No, actually say, I realize domestic violence is the leading cause of mass killings in America. I found this to be resonating. This was an interesting story. I want to send it to you. Tell you, tell me what you think. The number of people who've escaped by hearing my story are increasing significantly from year to year, just because someone shared a podcast. Yeah. And obviously they can go to the website and donate. Uh, yes. Yes. True. Homework. You can. Right. Because this is a uh, for purpose. But yes, you can do donate strictly on our website. Our goal is to have 1800 people who donate $15 a month. It's really easy on our website and we're calling it the 1800 club. It'd be nice if it went over 1800, but uh, currently it's the 1800 club and for $15 a month, uh, there's special news and discounts and resources that people get in exchange for donating. But most all of all, you keep the resources free for people that we provide so that they can find health and safety for themselves, their children, and pets. Well, Caroline Markle Hammond, thank you so much for your time. You're sharing your heroic journey. And I, I can't wait to have you on again uh, down the, down the line. Jeff, I thank you. I, again, you are a classic connector, a, a, just a stellar human to have coffee with. And I'm holding you to the martini fest that we must do. Uh, as yes, well. we've never had I'll... the martini. So that is the next uh, face That's to the face. Next. So. Yeah, exactly. All right. exactly. Thank you. Thank Caroline. you, sir. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Caroline did a fantastic job talking about her story and it's a little bit of an outlier in terms of we didn't talk as much about leadership and career pathing and how the leader got to where they are today. I really just wanted to get Caroline's story out to the world and help her organization help others as many people as they can. Joe, I know you have more not-for-profit experience than I do, but what was your take on Caroline's story? Yeah, I, I do. It's an amazing story, and it's one that needs to be shouted from the rooftops. Everybody needs to hear uh, her story, what she's been able to do, and what she can do, and what her organization 
can do. Uh, and I was struck, but not entirely surprised by one thing that she was talking about, where she talked about that nonprofits a lot of times don't cooperate with each other, but actually compete with each other. And the reason they do is because they're competing essentially for the same dollar. If you give a dollar or you're, you're granted a dollar to one organization, that means some other organization isn't getting it. And I think that's a shame that there are organizations out there that are as credible and meaningful and impactful as Carolyn's is that can't work with other organizations the way that you think they would. I've seen that before, and I think that's a shame. And it says something about our society. I wish that was something we could change. Yeah, I totally agree. Any uh, leadership tips you want to impart on the audience? You know, I'm always reminded of the uh, quote from the great Michael Scott, who said, you may look around and see two groups here, white collar and blue collar, but I don't see it that way. And do you know why not? Because I'm colorblind. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Corporate Couch. If you enjoy the podcast, I would love for you to take two minutes out of your day to rate us five stars and write a review. Please join me next week to learn from another great leader sharing their professional journey and insights.